On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. We're certainly visiting some amazing places, Mike, some remarkable places. We're at Qumran, again close to the Dead Sea. We're looking out across the Dead Sea. The heat is blistering. Uh, Jordan across the other side there, Mount Nebo, I believe. Um, but Qumran, just uh, remind us of what Qumran is famous for. Well, it's famous for a community of religious people that moved down here about 25 miles away east of Jerusalem, head down that Jerusalem to Jericho Road, turn left for Jericho, turn right for the Dead Sea. And they came down here to get away from all those nasty sinners up in Jerusalem. Yes, even Jerusalem with the temple, um, they thought were a bunch of sinners. They saw them as the sons of darkness. And this community who referred to themselves as the sons of light or the Yahad, the together ones, came here to set up a radical, reclusive, ascetic community. Uh, some people think the, these were also the Essenes, though some scholars aren't sure whether the two groups were the same. But it, it's a community who've come away from the hustle and bustle of life and even the religious centre in Jerusalem to be able to gather in a holy huddle where nothing could get in the way of their holiness and then pursuing their holiness. Why? Because they felt that Messiah was going to come uh, sort of any minute now and therefore they wanted to prepare for that and they prepared for that by coming to this absolutely deserted area. I mean, like you say, we look to the west and what do we see? Just arid rocks, mountains there. Look the other way, the Dead Sea and the mountains beyond and really... Nothing, absolutely nothing here apart from this community. You say community, was it not really like a cult? Well, do you know what? That's a, that's a good word for it. It, it. it probably would be seen as a cult in our terms, our terminology um, these days, because they thought they were the only ones. And of course, that is often the identifying mark of a cult, isn't it? They think they're the only ones and they're a secret rituals that you have to go through to become part of that cult and once in it's quite hard to get out of it so yeah perhaps to describe this as a cult would be would be really appropriate so what evidence is there of that community now i can see all sorts of ruins around this uh, well i think it's quite a very popular uh, place to come to yeah absolutely i mean we're sitting in the middle of loads of evidence here we're sitting in the ruins of Qumran that were destroyed during the Jewish-Roman War. And all around us is evidence of them being here. There's a huge dining room where they used to have their meals together. They ate in silence so as not to disturb any holy thoughts they might have. There are obviously there rooms where they lived. There are loads and loads of mikvot, um, ritual baths where they would bathe several times a day not just once but again and again and again in order to keep themselves pure and one of the other main buildings that they found here is a scriptorium where they carefully copied the scriptures that were so important to them and are they all men here then 
Yeah, it seems to be. It seems to have been a male-only community established at this place. Their sense of purpose was quite specific. Yes, they were gathering here in the wilderness to prepare for coming of Messiah that they thought was so close. And they felt that the way they had to do that and to hasten that was by solely giving themselves to prayer, to the study of scripture. Um, so it was a holy huddle, if I can put it that way, uh, whose purpose was to prepare for, to hasten, to get ready for the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And the writing side of the community, what, what did that involve? One of the things that they did was the copying of the Jewish scriptures. You know, um, the scribes and people who copied scriptures copied ever so carefully. They would have certain rules for copying. You know, they would count how many lines were on the page. They would count how many words were on the page. Uh, and they would check really carefully. Uh, and this was seen as a really holy thing. In fact, every time they got to a passage where they wrote or used the name of God, they would go and bathe again. So that shows you the extent of their radicalness. Now, how do we know that the scriptures were a really important part of them? Well, through an amazing discovery in a cave, just what, a hundred yards away from where we're sitting at the moment, just to our west. In 1947, a couple of Bedouin shepherd boys were up here on these hills with their sheep trying to find pasture and water for them and uh, they were playing games they were throwing stones down a, a cave that they discovered as they threw it down suddenly they heard a sort of smash sound at the bottom and they thought hello what was that anyway they went down took a look and they discovered inside there a whole number of uh, sealed jars and inside those sealed jars were linen wrapped scrolls of scripture now they didn't know that they couldn't read they were illiterate so um they went and told dad who you know came and had a look and he thought well, i don't know what this is but it looks like it could be valuable and you know i don't have much need for scrolls but i do have need for a new pair of shoes so he ripped off uh, a part of this scroll and took it to a dealer uh, in Bethlehem that he knew and said, is this worth anything? And the dealer being a shrewd guy said, yeah, you know, it might be worth a bit. Have you got any more? Uh, so the guy said, yeah, I could probably get a bit more. And they came back and tore a bit more off and a bit more off. Well, eventually the truth came out by the time these scrolls get to Jerusalem, the scholars begin to look. And as they come here and begin to look and research more into it, particularly, of course, after 1948, the state of Israel is established and the government now takes control of that. They find these many sealed jars containing 190 linen-wrapped scrolls that have sat in that cave behind you, David, for 2,000 years. Um, there were 11 caves they explored in all. It revealed thousands of scrolls and fragments. There were 900 complete scrolls just in that cave behind us alone. And what they discovered as they started to look at these scrolls were copies of every book of the Bible except Esther. Now, why except Esther? Well, Esther is the one book of the Old Testament that doesn't mention the name of God. And it looks, therefore, as if this community decided it wasn't worth keeping, therefore. 
And suddenly, at a stroke, we now have access to manuscripts that are more than a thousand years older than the previous manuscripts that we had. So we're now able to compare the oldest manuscripts we had there with these older ones and, and look at that issue of, well, surely the Bible's been changed over the years, hasn't it? And here's the amazing thing. They found the copies were almost identical. The main variants were to do with differences of spelling. It would be a bit like reading an early copy of one of Shakespeare's plays and see how he spelt things and, in fact, used to spell things even the same word in different ways at times. So the changes are really to do with things like spelling. They're incredibly minor. And therefore, it gives us, it gives us proof that the scriptures have been faithfully handed on throughout the ages. And that's why this Bible that we hold in our hands today, we can say we really can trust that what we've got here is what God originally gave us. And it's all because of scrolls that were found in those caves right there behind you. Well, it's remarkable there's a group just joined us uh, to one side coming to have a look at that cave, which is, to be fair, sort of halfway up a cliff face um <laughs> you know you, you wouldn't just walk into it at ground level i mean it's a what a remarkable find after all that time yeah absolutely and as i said it was found by accident i think god was in it personally but humanly speaking it was found by accident now it begs the question what on earth were they doing having to climb up that they would have had to use ropes and all sorts of things to get up to that cave at the top of the cliff that we're looking at there why did they do that well, that was because uh, in the years AD 66 to 70, there was what we call the Jewish-Roman War. And, you know, it was becoming clear to them that the Romans were heading this way. And so they decided to take the most precious thing they had, their scrolls, put them in these tall jars, seal them, well, wrap them first of all in linen, seal them, and then find the most obscure places they can. I mean, to be honest, as we look at these caves behind us, the only way you'd be able to access them today is, is experienced climbers who had all the right modern equipment. And they put them there to hide them and keep them safe from the Romans, intending, of course, to come back one day and collect them. But, of course, they never did come back because they were wiped out. The Romans defeated and killed so many of the Jews in that war. AD 70 was when the temple was destroyed. And so these scrolls that they intended to come back for, they never did. And they were left for scholars to find them in the middle of the last century. So without that community, that Qumran community originally, we wouldn't have that amazing evidence today. And that, that sense of community then that was here, cult-like like it might have been, I mean, what does that sort of lead your thoughts onto? when you talk about community from Jesus' point of view. Yeah, well, do you know what? The, the thing that always hits me whenever I bring groups here, David, is Jesus too believed in community, passionately. But he believed in a very, very different kind of community. I mean, first of all, he modelled community, didn't he? He took those 12 disciples and he said, come and live with me, guys, for three years. Come and be my disciples. Uh, learn, learn how to live right alongside me. So he not only believed in community and taught it, he practiced it. But of course, his community, that community of 12, uh, wandered up and down Galilee, came down here to Judea at times as well. 
and were the very opposite of this community. We said this community was exclusive, it withdrew from life. I mean, they still traded with people round about. They actually produced extremely expensive perfume, grew dates uh, and sold salt from the uh, Dead Sea over there. But, but that was all. They pulled back in again. And it was this constant pulling back in to keep themselves holy. They were a holy huddle. Whereas Jesus's group was not a holy huddle, but a holy explosion. <laughs> it was not a community that gathered in to stay in and keep in and, and to think we are the only ones. It was a community that gathered around Jesus in order to push out into the world. I mean, after all, Jesus actually sent his disciples out at times in twos to say, now you have a go, you go out there and take the message. So rather than being a community like here that wanted to be holy by withdrawing, Jesus wanted his followers to be a holy community who went out there and made a difference and lived out their holiness in the world as to use a phrase from the Sermon on the Mount, as salt and light, to make a difference, to be salt that brought both flavour and that preserved, because salt was used as a preservative, to be light, to, to bring light into dark places. So I love to come here because it models to me the very opposite of what Jesus' teaching about community was all about. And are you really talking about church? Well, we are. And, uh, you know, sometimes people have said, well, you know, Jesus didn't really talk about church, did he? Well, he did a couple of times. He, he didn't use that word an awful lot. It becomes the word, obviously, after his death that's used much more. But let's not forget, he established community. He lived community with the 12, with that wider group of followers that were with him. There, there are a couple of occasions uh, in the Gospels where he specifically uses the word church. Um, the first is in Matthew 16 when he's at Caesarea Philippi and Peter makes that wonderful confession that we look at in another episode. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, and Jesus goes on to say, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. A couple of chapters later, he's talking about how, how do you handle it when things go wrong in community? I think, you know, both you and I have lived in church community for many years, and let's face it, we know things go wrong at times because people are people. And so I love that Jesus here uh, gives a sort of model for what to do when things go wrong relationally. And in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. My goodness, life in church would be very different if we did that rather than went and told everyone, wouldn't they, first? Mm -hmm. Then if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, then tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a, a tax collector. So Jesus specifically uses the word church there, though he clearly believed in 
community, you know, and he wasn't inventing that word church. I was going to say, I mean, how does that work? Because the church didn't exist when Jesus was alive. Yeah, church didn't exist in the sense that we use that word now, of course. In fact, the Greek word for church, and remember the New Testament was written in Greek, the international language of the day. The Greek word for church was ecclesia. And that word had been used of God's people in the Old Testament. Where? Well, when the Bible, the, what we call the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings was originally written, there are many references there to the congregation of God's people, the community of God's people. And at a certain point in history, as the Jews had been scattered across different empires, they lost their ability, many of them, to speak Hebrew. What they needed was an edition of their own scriptures in Greek, the international language, that they could read and understand. And so a community of 70 Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, a version that's called the Septuagint. 70, because it was translated by 70 scholars. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uses this word, ecclesia, to translate every time that word community or congregation of God's people. So Jesus wasn't plucking a word out of the air here. Actually, what he's doing is making a very bold claim. He is saying that the community of God's people that God began to bring forth through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes, that community is now finding its fulfillment as it re-centers now around not the law, but around him. The old congregation, the old community, the old ecclesia is getting reformed and reshaped, made of both Jew and Gentile now, gathered around Jesus. So it's not a new idea that he's using here at all. But a bit of a shame that he doesn't give a bit more detail. You know, there's not like a blueprint. No, because I suppose there's not a blueprint for community, is there? Um, over the years as a pastor, uh, I've done many marriage preparation courses. But, you know, at best in those courses, all you can do is, is give people some basic principles. But you can't drop a blueprint for every single marriage because people are different and they do things different ways. And therefore, we've not got a blueprint of what church looks like in the teaching of Jesus. But what we've got, rather, is the atmosphere and the values that it is. It is about relationship. It is about community. It is about family. It's about gathering around him. It's about seeking to live out his teachings together. It's about working out together the implications of what he's said. And that, of course is exactly what church should still be today. And the trouble is, you know, when we talk about church these days, so often even Christians will often say, I'm going to church. Now, we know what they mean by that. You know, they're going to the local Baptist church or the Catholic church or St. Whoever's or the community church, whatever flavor it might be, I'm going to church. And I often say to people, no, you're not going to church. You are the church. You might be going to a particular gathering, of the church, 
But it, you know, it could actually help change our mindset if we even tried that little thing of stop saying I'm going to church. Because that sounds like we're going to a building, a place or a meeting. No, you are not going to church. You are the church. You are this community being built around Jesus. And as you gather with others, a little bit like this community here at Qumran, you're gathering with a group of people with, with a single vision, single mission, single purpose. Yes, of course, the vision here at Qumran was to copy the scriptures faithfully and to seek to live by it within this closed community, though frankly it's very easy to live within a closed community, isn't it, when you're not rubbing shoulders with sinners out there in the world. And likewise, you know, church today, we gather with one single vision uh, from all the different backgrounds that we come from, from all the different nations that we come from, from all the different parts of town that we come from. Our single purpose is to gather around Jesus, to worship him as God, and to say, Jesus, what have you got to say to me? And, you know, and some of that might come through the sermon, but you know what? Some of it might come through a conversation that we have with someone over a cup of tea or coffee at the end of the meeting. It might come through a testimony that someone shares in the meeting if your church makes space for opportunities like that, which I hope it does. It's about coming together around Jesus to worship him, hear from him, and to encourage one another. That was a really big part of what church community was all about in the New Testament. Talking of the New Testament, are there many different pictures of the church? Oh, you know, we, we get loads of pictures um, because it's trying to bring out all these different angles. It is described as, as a family, a body, a bride, a building, a temple, uh, an army. Uh, there are just so many different pictures and each one of those, like, imagine it like as a diamond that has different facets to reveal its beauty. It's as if the church is a diamond with lots of different facets. And sometimes you can look at it from one particular angle. One, you're turning the diamond round, you're just looking at one facet and you think, wow, that's beautiful. And you're looking at it and it's army. And, you know, Ephesians chapter six, Paul talks there about all of us needing to put on the armor of God together in this battle that we fight against the, the world and sin and the devil. But if all we ever do is look at the church through that one facet of it being an army, man, we're going to get wearied. Yeah, I've seen some churches like that at times where it's been, come on, rah, 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 up and at em, up and at em. And it's wearying because church is not meant to be that one facet it is an army yes but turn the diamond round and oh it's family what's family about it's about belonging it's about being supported it's about being loved it's about people being there even when you've blown it or turn the facet again and it's about being a body paul has a lot to say in particular about the church being the body of Christ and by that he means you know Jesus's physical body has gone back to heaven with him you're his body now here on earth he talks about how each one of us is a part of it and has a place in it and has a part to play so it's an army it's a family it's a body it's a bride another picture as you turn that diamond round again what does that bring home it brings home that Jesus is the bridegroom. He taught that himself. 
and that one day he's coming back for his bride. Now, frankly, who would want to turn up at church you know, and find that his bride had not spent probably the previous five days, if my daughters are anything to go by, getting themselves ready for that moment when they get married to their bridegroom? So that particular aspect of church reminds us that we come together to help one another constantly get ready for his return by the way that we live and the way that we are sharing the gospel. So there are lots of these different pictures. None of them dominates on its own. We need all of them. If church is just an army, we'll get weary. If church is just a family, we'll get sluggish and fat because we'll never go out and do anything. Um, if church isn't a bride, we'll never take seriously Jesus's call to holy preparation for his return. So all of these are what it means to be church, and hence we get all of these different pictures in the New Testament letters. This conversation is called His Church. Whose church is it? <laughs> well, you gave me the answer there, didn't you? His church. It's his. And... You know, the trouble is it's, it's very easy for us to think at times it's our church. And, and inevitably we fall into that, don't we? You know, you know, I might ask you a question and say, what's your church like, David? Or you might say, well, our church is da-di-da-di-da. And at one level, yeah, I can understand because we've got to communicate with one another somehow or other. But it is good to remember it's not my church, it's not your church, it is his church. It's not the pastor's church. It's not the vicar's church. It's not the elder's church. It's not even the pope's church if we come from a Catholic tradition. It's the church of Jesus. He is Lord and master of it. In fact, I had a, an interesting experience just a few weeks ago. A friend of mine um, had found himself almost unwittingly uh, establishing a church in a particular area through reasons I won't go into here. And people had started gathering around him and his wife. And someone came to him and said, well, what are we called? And he actually gave me a call and, and said, Mike, I don't know if I want to give us a name. Is it all right to have a name like, you know, the Vine Fellowship or St. Mark's Church or whatever it might be? Mm. And I said, well, yeah, I don't I don't think it's wrong. You know, at the beginning, God gave Adam the authority to name everything on earth, name all the animals. So naming things is not wicked. But he said, yeah, but I really want us to remember it's Jesus's church, not my church and not our church. And I could really understand what he was saying, really respect it. He was trying to bring home, folk, if we're going to gather here, please, don't you think it's my church and don't you think it's your church? It's his church. This is a community gathering around him to let him be Lord and Master, and for us to hear what he tells us to do, and for us to do whatever he tells us. But if every church got that right, or understood that, how would things be different? Well, I think one of the things it would deal with is the strong individualism that is so predominant in the West today, where we think church is about me, I cannot tell you the number of people I have heard who have said, I didn't get anything out of that sermon. That wasn't mine, of course, they were talking about at the time. Um, I didn't get anything out of that meeting. I'll tell you what, I bet every listener to this has probably said something very similar. 
And, you know, the minute we say that, it's like, whoa, 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 hang on. Um, whose church is this? You know, you're putting you as the most important person here, not Jesus. So I think one of the really practical things we could do from that is, is when we gather as church is to go with an attitude of, yes, I want to receive from you, Lord, today. I do. I want to hear from you. I want to worship you. But I also want to give. This is a place of giving. It's really clear in the New Testament that church was not just a place of getting. It was a place of giving. And by that, I don't just mean giving financially, though it did include that. It was giving yourself. It's interesting in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about those who had been giving uh, as background to encouraging the Corinthians to give too. Um, he says, you know, first of all, they gave themselves to the Lord and then they gave themselves to us. And I think, wow, yeah, that's what church should all be about. Giving ourselves first to the Lord, then giving ourselves to others and really trying to deal with this me, me, me syndrome that is so predominant in the West today. Well, with that thought in mind, Mike, just pray for us now. Lord Jesus, here in this abandoned place that speaks of an inward-looking community, help us to be church that comes together to be family, to be friends, to be your body, to be a building, to be an army, that comes together to build one another up, to put you at the centre through our worship, to hear what you have to say to us, but then to go out as church to be salt and light in this world where you have placed us. Help us, Lord, to change our thinking from going to church to being the church. And help us to be that church, not just when we come together, but wherever you have placed us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.